Lamentations, the songs of lament, which uh, we're doing prior to Holy Week, prior to Easter, as an extended meditation on what what is the meaning of Good Friday, the meaning of the cross, why was Good Friday necessary. And so the book of Lamentations is almost a perfect thing, a perfect book to study that because it is a collection of songs lamenting uh, lamenting uh, our predicament on the earth. The backstory of this, what I'm about to read, I'm about to read it, the second song, the second chapter of Lamentations, uh, the second song of lament, talking about this vast destruction. And the backstory of that is, is, is the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. God's people, Jerusalem, uh, the beautiful city of Jerusalem where God had made his presence known had fallen into such disrepair that God eliminated it from the face of the earth when the Babylonian armies uh, came through and uh, annihilated Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, And so we're going to see in this chapter there's a lot of similar themes. Obviously, it's a song of lament. But it's, it's, it's a lament that's hitting it from a couple of different and distinct directions. For, uh, and the first one is, as we read this chapter, I want you to pay special attention to how many times in the beginning it talks about the Lord bringing destruction personally. The Lord did this. He did that. Just the direct action of God on Jerusalem. Last week, the emphasis was on Israel's sin And this week, the emphasis is very much on the severity of God's justice. And there's a reason for that. So let's, uh, I'm going to ask you to to stay seated because it's another long reading. But let's listen intently together to God's inerrant word from Lamentations chapter 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. In his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall 
of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament, and they languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what, to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have seen it and we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago and he has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. And their heart cried to the Lord. A wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like torrent, like a torrent, night, day and night. Give yourself no rest and your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, and begin and at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord, and lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should woman eat the fruit of their womb and children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old, my young women and my young men, fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival. Day, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. so astonishingly brutal, that description. It's so astonishingly raw. 
It is a lament in its purest form. And its purpose, its intention, the intent of it is to bring us to, to, a, is, is to, is to, bring us to that place of, and that sense of utter helplessness. And it does that very well. Uh, the background what makes it so utterly horrible and so utterly devastating is, is the position of Jerusalem in the eye of God prior to all this happening. There's one verse that talks about Jerusalem as being uh, the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth. And that comes from Zion, Jerusalem, being described that way in Psalm 48 where it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself a fortress. God, it was a fortress to Jerusalem. She was the joy of all the earth. Psalm 50 says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. That was the position of Israel in the mind of God. And yet, here in this devastation, we see God has removed his presence, removed all protection, brought in agents of destruction, Uh, and come through with a severity of judgment that is utterly shocking. Utterly shocking. And it's meant to be. The severity of God's judgment is meant to shock us. Um, And yet, as God promises, he causes all things to work for the good to those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, And even in this, he is doing that. Not all things are good. That's not what that verse means. It does not mean that. Some things are tragic. But it does mean that God in his infinite power and wisdom is able to use all things to create good for us and glory to his name. And so the big idea, the takeaway from this passage is is this, that the severity of God, it brings grief and wisdom to the broken through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The severity of God brings grief and wisdom to the broken through the knowledge of Jesus. Let's look at that. It's one part at a time. The severity, the severity of God. Uh, I've mentioned this before. One of the most brilliant uh, apologetic debates I ever saw was someone was trying to make the case that because there's evil in the world, because God allows children to die, therefore it means he was not good and therefore the Christian understanding of God is not true. We talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, This atheist was making this case and the Christian apologist countered by saying, well, actually, you're not giving God enough credit. It's not just children that God kills. Every living person who's ever lived 
has been, the, God is responsible for their death. God has killed, every, God ultimately is responsible for the death of every person who has ever lived. Calls uh, to mind this, the severity of God's judgment uh, and that God, as judge, is over all the earth in, in, in a much more massive way than we ever really think to give God credit for. And that's a scary thing. There's a, a, a verse in Romans 11 where Paul calls it the severity of God. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Israel who have abandoned God, who have refused to have faith in God. And the ultimate uh, outcome of that is going to be another destruction of Jerusalem that's about to happen in 70 AD. And Paul says, he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And that verse can stump you uh, to understand what that means. Uh, talking about the severity of God's judgment. But this passage, in the ESV translation, the, the heading that scholars put on this, the heading is, God has destroyed without pity. And it's 10 verses, the very first part, first 10 10 verses are just over and over again, this direct action of God against his people. Verses 1 through 3, God attacks without mercy. He casts Jerusalem down from the place of heavenly protection onto the earth. Verses 4 and 5, God who used to be Jerusalem's fortress and glory becomes the enemy of his people. Verse 6 and 7, God destroys his temple. Then God destroys the defenses of the city. Then God destroys the leaders of the city and then leaves the city in the aftermath of starvation and worse and utter and absolute ruin. And it brings to mind questions the severity of that judgment. We question that and say, why, how can that possibly be so extreme? Uh, And especially the suffering of the innocent, uh, the children that are involved, that aren't directly involved. We could almost stomach it if it was just Israel's sins. In fact, as Americans, we can completely handle that uh, kind of suffering for our own sins. Um, But the idea that the suffering extends to the innocent is almost beyond comprehension. We can't understand it. And because of that, uh, people see that and see that action of God and attack God as a moral monster. Here's a quote. This is a quote from Richard Richard Dawkins. Famous quote. You've probably heard it before, but it really kind of sums up people's understanding of this verse uh, from an unbelieving perspective. It says, he said this, he said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, and malevolent bully. 
tell us how you really feel, Richard. (laughs) How do we understand this? And here's the thing. This action of God against Jerusalem, uh, it's not just presented in the Bible as uh, retribution. It's presented as justice. It's presented as God's righteousness being worked out on the stage of human history. And man, that's hard for us to understand. Crazy hard for us to understand that because we are so wrapped in, 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 in the subjective reality of, of us being the center of the universe and have so lost sight of the disparity between the holiness of God and our own sinful condition. You know, it helps a little bit to understand, like we talked last week, that everything that was just, everything that we just read is mirrored in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 28, written, uh, written a thousand years prior. God said, all of these things are going to come to pass. All of these things in your rebellion, I will bring to pass. Uh, I will you will be the horror of all the earth. The bodies will be left out on the streets, children taken captive, kings go into exile to a hard and ruthless nation, a horrible siege, uh, forced uh, to unspeakable acts. All of this was laid out in mirror image a thousand years prior. And then after that, for a thousand years, prophet after prophet after prophet, warning Israel, warning Israel that this would happen to you but that doesn't that gets us part of the way there but it's still so hard to understand how God would do this and it's because what lies behind that questioning what lies behind that hardship is really the disparity between God and man even though we don't mean to we tend to think of God as a big man in the sky. Big man theology is kind of the theology of most of the American church. That God is just a bigger, better uh, version of ourselves. And we kind of project ourselves onto him. But that's just not true. There is a, there is a disparity between us and God that is so wide. The chasm between us is so great that we can't, we, it's hard for us to comprehend. For example, we had uh, All around our house, there's lots of like, there's a lot of bushes and uh, we had about a year and a half ago a rat rat infestation that came into our garage and uh, and by the time we realized what was happening, there was like a rat infestation in our house and we we made war upon the rats. I mean, rats carry disease, they are... uh, dirty, we're worried about the health of our children, they leave, you know, they're leaving, there's feces all over the garage, and so we made war upon the rats, and we bought every kind of trap that you can imagine to catch rats, the ones that electrocute, the traps that slam shut, the sticky ones, we did everything we could, and we finally, uh, we won most, we won giant battles in the garage, and then eventually the last battle was at one rat actually got itself into our house and chewed up 
ruined our refrigerator, ruined our dishwasher, and finally we eliminated him and the war was over. <laughs> now, now like you tell, I tell you that story and maybe you know, you're laughing, you think it's funny, a lot of you are probably thinking, wow, that's really gross. Um, I can't believe you're telling that. Nisa's probably super embarrassed right now. But did anybody, as I told that story, be honest, was anybody thinking that, uh, that I was a moral monster for, for ridding my house of a rat infestation? No one would think that because uh, I have every right I have every moral right to rid our house of that infestation, to protect our children, to protect our family. I don't have any moral responsibility to those rats that had, were causing so much damage and destruction. I'm not going to tell you that story. It gives a little bit of a glimpse, but the, the, the disparity between us and God is even greater than the disparity between me and the rats. If your child, if your child had, a, had, a, had, a, had bronchitis or pneumonia or bronchial infection and you gave them uh, antibiotics, would anybody have a moral concern for dis- destroying the bacteria that was causing that illness? Absolutely not. But even that disparity, even the moral disparity between us and pathogenic organisms isn't as wide as the disparity between God and us. That's hard. I mean, and that is, that's crazy for us to understand because we live in our skin and we are the center of the universe and to conceive of God like that. But what this is talking about, Paul in Romans, he talks about, uh, you know, somebody makes an objection about God doing with, with what he will with his creation. And Paul's response is, who are you, O oh man? Who are you to tell God, the creator, what he can do with his creation? The point is that, here's the point. The creator has all right to do what he will with the life that he has created. He has no moral responsibility towards us. He especially has no moral responsibility towards a rebellious race that is actively sinning and working against him. And so when we see these shocking things in the Old Testament of God purging, cleansing, ending generational cycles of sin. We say to ourselves, oh my gosh, that's horrible, that's awful, that's moral monstrosity. But in the right perspective of seeing the giant chasm between God's perfection and holiness and us, it's God's right, every right to do that. Question is, is he good? Does he love us? And the point of this, the point of those stories is not to produce a self-loathing in us to walk out thinking, oh my gosh, I'm worse than a pathogenic organism in the eyes of God, because that's not how God has, 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 has told us. Uh, that we are to him. This is, though, to, pre- to create a true fear of the Lord, to understand his majesty and being and righteousness and holiness in the face of our corruption. But it's also 
for us to see the true kindness of God. <coughs> to see that with that's the disparity, that is the moral chasm that Jesus crossed in order to bring us salvation and life. Understanding the depths of the disparity helps us to understand the beauty of God and the purpose of it is to show us how much he loves us and has chosen to love us even in our present condition. The second thing is that the severity of God's judgment brings grief and wisdom to the broken. Last week I talked about how God will use uh, we'll use tragedy as, as like a traumatic shock to our system to wake us up to our sin and depravity. And that's true, but there's also a lasting effect to these shocks. Uh, there's also a lasting effect to the severity of God's judgment. Uh, I had, last year, broke my leg, broke tibial, tibial plateau fracture. And... Uh, When I went back to the doctor after three months, was in the cast, and went back to the doctor, and he showed me the x-ray of my leg after three months, and there was a big, where the, where the fracture had been, there was a big, white, cloudy blur in the x-ray, and he told me, that is new bone growth. He's saying, your body, when that fracture happened, your body then came in and produced all this extra bone growth around it, so it's actually stronger now than it was before you broke it. Uh, and now the, but the downside of that is that also on certain days, I don't know if it's the weather or if it's such I, walk, I do something wrong, but I have a walk with a little bit of a limp now on that left leg. That's, there's a reminder in it. Even though it's physically stronger than it used to be, there's a reminder of that, of that injury. And God does the same thing to us through his judgment. There's a constant prayer in the Old Testament that says that prays and asks God to set the bones that he had broken. Which is telling us two things, right? It's telling us that that God will heal us, but it's also saying that he's the one who's snapping the bones. God is the one who's breaking the bones, uh, and the purpose for that is that he resets them and reheals them so that they're stronger than before. Um, But also... Uh, in that experience, uh, the experience of that judgment, the experience of our own evil, the experience of sin in the world against us, it leaves a permanent mark to help us to remember, to remember that experiential knowledge. And so, what this is, what, what, the point is when God's severe judgment happens, it brings real grief. There is a real and significant grief in these passages uh, for our own sin and also for just sin in the world. And we have to be careful when we preach passages like this. This is not saying, this is not a universal thing that we can apply to all suffering. This is, it would be a mistake to say that every, every suffering is a response of God to uh, that group's sin. And that's not the case. Uh, for the, in China, the group that I went with last year, their church was completely decimated by the government. Everyone thrown into prison. It wasn't because of their sin. It was because of evil, sin in the world. 
that affected them. And so we have to be careful to not universalize this. But there, and so there, the point is there's real grief and there's real, uh, there's real grief from that. And God, we can see in this, invites this blunt language that people cry out. Jerusalem cries out to God, who have you ever treated like this? which tells us that we can, in our grief, we can go to God and be honest and real about uh, our suffering. But the grief also leaves these permanent marks in us. And the permanent mark is our experiential knowledge of evil that we carry with us, that we wouldn't know otherwise. And so there's a purpose in the grief where God gives us an understanding of evil from being in it or experiencing it. And then that grief brings wisdom. When you read this passage, uh, there are different people speaking when you pay attention. The first 10 verses uh, is a narrator. He's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then after the narrator speaks in verses 11 through 19, there's another voice that comes out that's speaking to Jerusalem. Some people think it's Jeremiah, the prophet, speaking in first person to Jerusalem. Maybe uh, some people think maybe it's God speaking. I don't think so. But what I think is that it's the voice of wisdom speaking to Jerusalem. And in it... uh, in the midst of that, at first it acknowledges just the destruction of Israel, and then it calls Israel. Uh, it calls Israel to consider. A key verse is verse thirteen. It says, "It says, what can I say for you, and to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin." is vast as the sea, and who can heal you? That's a super important verse. Again, it's speaking in the first person, saying, how can I comfort you? It's keeping up that language of calling Jerusalem with the language of daughter and virgin daughter that we talked about last week, which is the redemptive names of God's people. And that's important. But the center of it, the center of that and the center of this purpose, of, the, of this passage and the purpose of it is when it says your ruin is as vast as the sea. And then it asks the question. It says, who can heal you? And it's a rhetorical question. The purpose is to, is, is to show the spirit The ruin is as vast as the sea. And the answer to that question, who can heal you, is no one. There is none to comfort. As far as human means go, thinking in human terms, uh, there is no human power that can possibly save. And that's the point. That's That's what the poet is trying to bring out. No matter whether you're born in war or in peace, no matter whether you live in Syria or Seattle, no matter whether you live in a mansion in La Jolla or in a cardboard box in East Village, 
all of our reality for every one of us is that our spiritual ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal us? And so he poses that question to face us with the reality that where we turn for help, once that knowledge is available, once we come to grips with that, is the most important decision that we'll ever make. And in fact, in this destruction, in the severe justice of God, he eliminates all the other possibilities. You can't turn to your idols, to your lovers, because they were deceiving you. You can't turn to the lying prophets uh, who leave the infection of sin festering in the wound rather than healing you by telling us of our sin and instead offering false assurances of peace and various prosperity gospels. We can't turn to anything in the world. The only thing that we can turn to for help is the name of the Lord. And so listen, wisdom, the voice of wisdom in the second section counsels, it says this, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise and cry out in the night, the beginning of the night watches, and pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. But it's only only the Lord that can heal the bones that he's broken. That's our only hope. So the third part is through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's an answer to that prayer. That prayer is a crying out, pouring a heart out to the Lord looking for comfort. There's an answer to that prayer for comfort and healing in the book of Isaiah chapter 40. The first part of Isaiah for 39 chapters it's talked about similar themes about Israel falling into destruction and under the severity of God's judgment and then right at chapter 40 it turns a hard corner and it says this it says it says comfort comfort my people says your God and speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And how does God comfort his people? He tells us a few chapters later in chapter 53. Speaking about Jesus 700 years before the fact, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now listen again to the afflictions of Jerusalem in the second chapter of Lamentations. It says this, It says, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you and they hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her 
This is the day that we have longed for, and now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity, and he has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted in the might of your foes. And just like last week, we saw these golden threads woven through this text of lament, talking about uh, the suffering of Jerusalem in ways that were parallel, almost synonymous, recurring words, uh, talking about the suffering of Christ in in the prophetic record and in the New Testament. Listen to the similarities. Listen to the words uh, that that passage uses uh, in passages that are, speak about Jesus. The, it talks about mockers scoffing, crying out insults, wagging their heads at the perfection of beauty and the joy of the world as it languishes. And the Gospels say that those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. The passage talks about enemies gloating over their victory. And yet it was the Lord doing what he had purposed, giving over to the enemy for his purposes. And the book of Acts tells us that that's what God did with Jesus. It says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Listen. So what does all that mean? There's all these echoes, forward echoes, pushing forward, pointing our attention, as we pay attention, to Jesus and to his suffering, the suffering that he took on the cross under God's righteous judgment. It was God doling out the severity of his justice, all of the severity of his justice on Jesus. And so these pictures of God's severity, the severity, these physical manifestations of the severity of God's judgment in the Old Testament are pictures for us of the reality of, of, of the spiritual judgment that is due us, the, the vastness of our spiritual ruin that should befall us. This should be our story. This should be our lament. This should be our terror. This is the horror that we would be in were it not for one, one thing. And that is that Jesus took all of that on himself for us. The physical manifestation, the horror of it that we see in the text is nothing compared to the spiritual terror and the spiritual horror that Jesus suffered as God poured out upon him the severity of his wrath for all sin of all time over the course of history. And when we understand this disparity between God and us, the utter sinfulness of our sin, we understand that Christ was our substitute, taking that for us, uh, it shows us that God is not a moral monster. He's anything but anything but a moral monster. The purpose of Good Friday is we study the book of Lamentations and it's an extended meditation on the necessity of the cross. The purpose of Good Friday was God's love. 
His love for us. His love that extended across that infinite moral chasm to reach down to us in our guilt and shame and utter wreckage, to reach across a ruin that was as vast as the sea and to bring us life through suffering in our place. And that is not a picture of a God who's a moral monster. That is a picture of a God that we can trust and that we can love and rejoice in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it tells us shocking things about ourselves. It's super unpleasant, Lord, to hear the reality of the utter sinfulness of our sin in comparison with your perfect holiness and righteousness. Uh, it's hard to hear, Lord. But that isn't the ultimate reality for us. It's only the backdrop that serves to show us how much you care for us and how much you love us and what you accomplished for us on the cross. So, Lord, we pray in this time, through this extended meditation, help us not dwell on in morbid reflection on our sin, but let it instead produce in us a love and a thanksgiving and a rejoicing in who you are and what you've done for us. And we know, Lord, that there is coming a day when you are going to erase all of this, or even erase the memory of our sin, Lord, and make us perfect so that we... and, and so that we would live with you and we will live with you in perfection and glory and beauty and light, Lord. And that's all because you crossed that chasm to save us. So, Father, help us to remember that so that we might worship you and be as grateful as we ought to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.